welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, and the word of the Sovereign Lord reads this way. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their faith... Who, excuse me, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things. And then Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in the temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is the word of the Lord. So these two texts are related because they demonstrate this morning two simple foundational truths that should shape how we live and how we interact with the rest of the world all the time, but especially this time of year. And the first truth is that we see in this scripture is the fact that there is no such thing as an atheist. There's not. No matter, no matter what someone might want to tell you, there's no such thing as a person who truly believes that God does not exist. Now, I do know that there are people who will jump up and down, and they will foam at the mouth, and they will scream, and they will holler, and they will say awful and hurtful and uh, vulgar things to you, and they will insist that they do not believe in God, right? And they will give you, and they will go to great lengths to try to prove that to you, but, but I want you to hear me, right? Here's what I know. God is true, and every man's a liar, Right? And the Bible makes it clear, the Word of God makes it clear that, that no one, right, there's no one who doesn't know that God exists. Everybody instinctively knows that God exists. This is what Paul says here. Okay, Notice what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, they know who God is. They know the real God. They know that he exists. They just don't want to admit it because they suppress the truth. And this word suppress here in the Greek, in the Greek actually has this idea of actually like taking a basketball and trying to hold it underwater. That's the active kind of sense of the verb here. 
Right? You take a basketball and hold it underwater, right? And what happens when you do that? The ball resists your efforts to push it underwater, and, and the moment you let it go, what happens? It pops up to the surface. So you have to actively hold it there. You have to work at it. Right? It pops back up to the surface, and that's the idea, right? For those who claim to be atheists, the truth is that God exists. And they know that he exists, but they try to push this truth under the surface so that for them it's not real. And they have to actively keep suppressing the truth. And they do so, as Paul says, in their unrighteousness. They do so in their sin, which means they lie. They lie to you, they lie to me, they lie to themselves. They lie about the truth. And they fill their hearts with sin and depravity in order to avoid the truth. They fill their hearts with all kinds of, of, of sin and hatefulness and, and deviancy to try to cover up the truth. But it is ultimately futile. Because as Paul says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Not only do they know that, that, that God exists, but they know what God exists because the evidence of who he is and his character and his nature surrounds them. It's all around them. It is inescapable. It is unavoidable. That is why Paul says they are without excuse. Right? That's why they're rightly condemned in their sin. That's why, right, why that, that, that God can pronounce judgment. They know the truth, but they suppress the truth. And that's why when somebody asks me, hey, you know what? What happens if an innocent person in a third world country dies? An innocent person in a third world country dies, right? but they don't hear the gospel. And I say, well, then God would take them immediately to heaven. They go, really? Yeah, of course he would. But the problem is there's no such thing as an innocent person in any country. Not first world, second world, or third world. There's never been an innocent person except one. right? So that's actually a hypothetical question. It's not a real question. The thing is, is the idea is that everybody knows Everybody knows that the, uh, the truth about, about God in his nature is unavoidable. Right? And I would say that God, um, you see, the problem ultimately is there's no such thing as a person who doesn't have God's law written on their hearts, as Paul says later on in Romans. Everybody has a sufficient knowledge to be accountable to him. Everyone has a sufficient understanding of who God is and what he expects. Paul says, for all that they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. But rather than worshiping God for who he is, they instead worship gods of their own making. They worship idols, which ultimately leads then to the second truth. The second truth, the first truth is that there's no such thing as an atheist. The second truth is everybody is religious in their own right. Everyone is religious in their own right. No matter if they, they want to say that they're not, no matter what they say worship is, everyone is religious because, because everyone worships something. Notice what Paul says. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I have passed along and observed the objects of your worship. Not only does every human being believe that God exists, every human being 
has a religious side to them. Every human being practices a religion. Even those who insist that they are not religious. Even those who say, there's no way I would practice religion. I hate religion. That's the the pariah of the world. Everyone's religious. Because the fact of the matter is, we all worship something. We all worship something. We either worship the one true God that's revealed in creation and scripture, or we worship the God of our own making. That's the two alternatives. There is none other, by the way. We either worship the God of the Bible or we worship some false God. And typically we choose the God that appeals to us. The God that makes sense to us. The God that fits our life. The the God that appeals to our choices. The God that tickles our ears. The God that makes us feel superior to everybody else. We all worship something. Notice Paul says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, the thing is, it's in our nature to worship. We were created for worship. We were designed for it. We were built for it. We were built to glorify God. That's why we instinctively seek to worship. But because of our sin... We've exchanged the glory of the awesome God who created us in all things for the faded glory of the impotent gods that we create with our own hands. Be they the false gods like Mormonism, or the false gods of the prosperity gospel, or the false gods of secular humanism, which, by the way, is very prominent in our world, or the false gods of money. We all are inclined to worship, but mankind as a whole has exchanged the one true God who made all things for a myriad of false gods that they invented. And so the truth remains, everyone is ultimately religious, and everyone worships something. Acts chapter 17, just before this text that we're in, says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. The city of Athens in Greece, part of the Roman Empire, was, was full of idols. They were everywhere. The religious nature of humanity was completely on display in the city. Paul was surrounded by the evidence that everybody has some form of religion. That's why he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. Now what you need to understand, though, is that Athens right, was not just the center of idolatrous worship. It was the center of the intellectual world at the time. Athens was the center of knowledge and reason and philosophy and science. This was a city where the best and the brightest minds came to lecture and to talk and to argue. This is where the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers would argue their points of view. The Stoic philosophers believed that that life was about being virtuous and living according to nature and that the Epicureans were all about avoiding pain and seeking pleasure and living for the moment. And the reason why I mention this is because Athens at the very, that very time was very diverse. It embraced many different worldviews, which means they were peop- there were people there that were overtly devoted to their religion, and there were people who really didn't make any claim of any religious affiliation, right? People that fancied themselves intellectuals, much like we have today. There were those who claimed to be religious and those who thought they were too enlightened to be religious. They They worshipped at the the idol of reason. But notice what Paul says. In every way, you were very religious. The reality is all men, all men are religious. 
And even those who claim no religion, they still worship at the altar somewhere. Whether it's the altar of scientism, which, by the way, is a big altar here in our culture. You know, if somebody in the lab coat says it, then you must, you know, believe it. We, we, we now are worshiping at the idol of young um, children who now fancy themselves as environmentalists and being hoisted up for the world to look at. We worship at the altar of atheism. Atheism is an altar, right? In fact, atheists would claim that they have no faith. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is they still have faith in unproven assertions. To be an atheist, there are things you must believe that you can't prove, that you must have faith in. Like the fact that life comes from non-life. How did that happen? Right? That, that everything came out of nothing. Right? And that all of creation is somehow this naturalistic outworking of random chance processes, all of which are unproven, which means you have to take it all on faith. And then the atheist will say, well, I don't have faith. I have confidence. I have confidence in my point of view. I have confidence that atheism is true. The problem is the word confidence. The word confidence is a Latin word made up of two Latin words. Con, fide, which literally translates is with faith. That's what it means. That's what confidence means. So when someone says, I have confidence, you say, you have faith. Everyone believes God exists. Everyone is religious. Everyone. Everyone has faith. So this is important because Paul finds himself in the city of Athens. And this is during his second missionary journey. And he begins to preach the gospel in, in, on the Sabbath in the synagogue. But he also goes out to the marketplace during the week. And people begin to hear him. And philosophers begin to hear him. And now they really are interested in what he has to say. And some would mock him and say, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching Jesus and, and the resurrection. Which, by the way, in Greek culture was a really weird idea. And then they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, Maybe, may, he, may we know what this new teaching is that you are preaching, presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So Paul was invited up to Mars Hill to the Areopagus, Areopagus to speak about the gospel. And what you need to realize is this is the place where the best and brightest minds debated everything. This was, if there was a place of intellectuals, if there was a place where, where the elites met, this was it. And Paul now had a chance to proclaim the gospel about Christ in this particular setting. And what does he do? He leverages the fact that everyone knows that God exists and that everyone is religious, right? And he did so in order to clear the way to present the hope of Christ. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious and I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. The city of Athens was so inclusive to all different worldviews and religions, that it even had an altar to an unknown god just in case they left something out. They had identified basically every other god, right? And so they created an unknown, I mean, an altar to an unknown god just in case they missed one. And so Paul uses this and says, What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. He's saying that the unknown God that that you have built this altar to exists, which you kind of know instinctively anyway. And, And he is the one who created everything, including you, right? He was the one who, who gave you life. He's the one who gave you breath. And he's the, one, he's the reason why you exist. In verse 26, and he, he says, And he made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that God determines exactly what they do. God is sovereign. And they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being, and even some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. You see, what Paul is saying is that there's something in you that longs to know God, that there's something in you that instinctively you know that he exists, and he created all things including you, and you exhibit that in your life, and you exhibit this need to worship him. Why? Because because you were made for him. You're his offspring. There's something in you that testifies to the truth about his existence. Paul continues and says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold and silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of men. The internal God-given understanding that you have, this pull that you have, should cause us to see that God is not something that we can create with our own hands and and with our own minds. We should see by the evidence of the world around us, we should see in our own lives that he's much bigger than that. We should see by this God-given sense that that by creation points to a reality that's bigger than this, bigger than these man-made idols bigger than the idols of our understanding. And then he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul makes it very clear The time has come to leave behind these silly, false gods that people ought to worship him. And notice that he uses the word repent here. He says that God commands everyone everywhere to repent. Not just come and believe a few new facts about Christ. Not just pray some prayer, right? But to repent. And this word means to completely change your mind. It means to change your thinking. It means to change the way that you see the world. Paul is referring to the call of Jesus to repent and believe the gospel. This is where our minds and our hearts change and we turn away from our old life and our old way of believing and thinking and we turn towards Christ and we believe in him and him alone. And Paul is saying that the time is now. Why? Because the judgment is coming. And everything is pointing toward that reality. And the proof of this reality, the proof that this is the truth, is the historical resurrection of Christ. Jesus rose from the dead historically, proving that that he is God in the flesh. 
proving that he could do what he promised to do, which was to save sinners, proving also that he's going to come back. And when he does, he will judge the world in righteousness. And those who are in Christ will spend eternity with him in joy. And those who are not in Christ will be judged and cast into hell for eternity. And then Paul says, excuse me, and then, and then Acts says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. See, Paul preached the gospel to these influential people on Mars Hill, and the results were simply typical. Typical of people who hear the gospel, because some reject the message, some are interested in learning more about the message, and some believe the message. By the way, which is exactly should be our experience if we're sharing the message. Some people will believe. Some will not believe. And we know the difference between the two, right? Those who receive the gospel have had their hearts prepared to receive the gospel. That's the work of God. Those who don't have hardened hearts to the gospel. Our job is not to make converts. Our job is to sow the seed, to be faithful to preach the gospel. Nonetheless, Paul preached the gospel to this entire crowd Some believed. He preached knowing that all men instinctively believe God exists, and he preached knowing that all men worship something. And he used this truth to present the hope of Christ. Now you might be thinking, okay, so now you spent all that time talking about this. How in the world does this relate to Christmas and us getting ready for Christmas? Well, actually, it it relates to everything that we're going to talk about. It's completely related to how we get ready for Christmas as a church family. Because here's what we know. What we know is that everybody knows, everybody knows that God exists. And we know that everybody in some form or fashion is religious some way. And in addition to that, everyone, everyone right now is preparing to celebrate and to worship this unknown God that we call Christ. I say unknown because to most people he is unknown. They don't know him, but we do, but they're still going to worship him. Even if they don't know what they're doing, they're still going to worship him. Everyone around you is preparing to worship the unknown God who is Jesus. Everyone, every one of you knows this, right? We know that it's about Christmas. Just look around you. Look at the lights and the decorations and the greeting cards. Look at all the stuff that's being sold in all the stores. Just look at people's credit card statements. They're not spending money for no reason. Everybody, whether they want to admit it or not, is about to celebrate Christmas, a holiday where we celebrate the birth of Christ. Everyone's preparing to worship the unknown God. Now, some, of, some people might say, well, I don't celebrate Christmas. Right, this time of year, this this holiday season is about Christ to me. It's just about, you know, it's just a holiday. It's just a winter holiday. And I would say that's nonsense. Right? You can deny Christ if you want to, just like people deny the existence of God. And you can say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. It won't hurt my feelings. That's fine. But this entire time of year is about Christ and you know it. Right? The, the reason why your kids are out of school for the next two weeks, by the way, isn't because the government said, hey, we want a winter holiday called winter holiday. Right? It's Christmas. It's Christmas break. Right? And, and the reason why you're watching all the Christmas movies and all your kids are watching all the old Christmas cartoons that you watch and that you're listening to Christmas songs and, and the reason why 
you feel compelled to give gifts this time of year is not because it's some obscure winter festival. It's Christmas. It's not a nebulous winter holiday. You can say season's greetings if you want to, but it's still about Christ. And the reason why you feel drawn to be close to your friends and your family, and the reason why you're becoming sentimental this time of year, is because of Christ and Christmas. You, like everyone else, is preparing to worship Christ even if you don't want to, even if you don't know that's what you're doing, even if you don't know him. There is something in you that longs to worship. You will worship this unknown God this time of year. Now, for sure, most people who are, you know, who celebrate Christmas are worshiping some false god, whether it's money, a lot of that, children. By the way, that's a relatively new idol, but it's been one that has grown. Careers, a lot of people worship their careers. And maybe even some false religion. There's a lot of those too. But here's the thing. Everyone knows that God exists. Everyone is religious in some form or fashion. Everybody longs to worship. And everybody this time of year has their mind and their heart set on Christmas, even if they don't want to admit it. And the reason why I mention this is because this, because church... We have no greater opportunity than this one right now. We have no greater opportunity to share the the hope of Christ with the world around us. No greater opportunity. People are already thinking about Christmas. It's already on their minds. They already kind of know the story anyway. People are already preparing to celebrate it. Everyone around you is, is doing so. Everything around us is pointing to that. This is our Mars Hill moment. Everybody knows God exists. Everybody is religious. And everyone is thinking about this holiday. We have the perfect opportunity to share with them the reason for this, for for the reason why the world is spending billions of dollars right now to buy gifts. We have the perfect opportunity to tell them the real reason why this time of year is so special. We have the perfect opportunity to tell them why there's so much hope this time of year. We have the perfect opportunity to tell them why we celebrate this birthday of Christ. You now have the perfect opportunity to invite people to church. Perfect excuse, by the way. You have the perfect opportunity to invite people to the Christmas musical. You have the perfect opportunity to ask the question, do you know the real reason for Christmas? Everyone knows God exists. Everyone is religious, and everyone is prepared to celebrate Christmas. Everything is pointed to that. Everything. Everything in in their life is pointing to that. Everything. You see, we're not celebrating Christmas because some baby was born in the world, divine or otherwise. We're not just celebrating the fact that God came into the world. We're celebrating the reason why he came into the world. Because he came into the world for a purpose. We're celebrating God becoming a man in order to provide for our greatest need. And not only does Christmas point to that, but our entire lives point to that. You see, at the end of all things, when you look upon your life, you're going to see that your life is composed 
of some kind of mixture of good days and bad days. We're all going to have them. Some of you are going to have great days, and some of you will have bad days, and all of us will have a mixture of those. Some will have a higher mixture of good, and some will have a higher mixture of bad. But the fact of the matter is, when you look back on your life, you're going to see not completely good or completely bad. You're going to see kind of like a combination of all those things. Our lives will be composed of the mundane and also the extraordinary we are just going to have those boring, routine days where it just seems to drag on, and then we're going to have those exciting days where everything's great and wonderful, and it seems like time is flying. We're going to have times of great victories, and we're going to have very, very dark defeats. Our lives are going to be composed of the good things that we've done that we're so proud of, and, and our lives are going to be composed of the sins that we just desperately wish no one ever finds out about that we're so ashamed of. Because all of us have good things and bad things. Good and bad. And what we need to understand is the result of your life is not the balance between these two things. Hear me. The result of your life is not the balance between these two things. Your life is not a set of scales on which you weigh the good versus the bad and hope that it works out in your favor. That is not how it works. We don't weigh the good in your life by the bad. right? That does not determine your eternity. As many people suppose, by the way, if you talk to the vast majority of people, even many who claim to be Christians, they believe that that's how it works. The good and the bad in your life are not balances. But rather, they're both signposts in your life that point forward to the same reality. You see, the good in your life, all of it, points toward something else. Something greater. The love that you feel, the love that's given to you by someone else, the warmth of a hug, the sense of relief you have on payday. Whew, right? Been there? You got like two bucks left and you got to buy groceries and you're like, payday's three days away, right? Or how about the elation you feel when your team wins, right? Or the pride you feel when one of your children does something honorable and worthwhile, the beauty of a sunset, the, the way the music stirs your heart, all the good that's in your life, all of it points forward towards a greater good that you were created for. And, and I'm not talking about heaven. Okay, heaven's good. Heaven's a wonderful place, and, and for those who are in Christ, they will go there. Right? It is good, but that is not the greatest good. Even that points forward to the greatest good. All the good in your life, including heaven one day, points to the very source of good itself. And all the good in your life is a faint image of what truly is good, and that is God himself. You see, good is good, not because it's good, but because God is good. Which means all the things in your life that you experience are good because they come from God. They have their origin in God, in his nature, because he is the very definition of good. So all the people in your life, right? for all the good in your life, every good moment, every precious memory, every bit of love, every bit of hope that you feel, right? all of that is the faint image of the greatest possible good, which is God. The God that you were created by and the God that you were created for. The God that you know exists God that you long to worship. All the good in your life points to him. 
But by the same token, all of the darkness and the bad in your life points to the same reality, by the way. Every bit of pain and betrayal and depression, all the hatred and frustration and the hopelessness you've ever experienced are all pointing to something. Every bitter moment, every nightmarish memory, every bit of anger, all of it points towards a much darker reality. It actually points towards your greatest problem. And the greatest problem might surprise you. The greatest problem is that God is good. You see, God, unlike us, is all good. He is perfect. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. And all the good in our life is an indication that points towards that. But our problem is that no matter how much good we have in our life, we have been ruined by the stain of our sin, which means the relationship that we have, that we were created for, the relationship that we long for, has been broken. We were cut off from, from God. But worse than that, because God is all good, and we're not, what does he do with us? Because if he's good, then he must be just. Because justice itself is good. Otherwise, it's not justice, right? If God is good, then, then he must be just, and that means the stain of our sin must be dealt with. Our transgressions must be judged and punished. Otherwise, God is not just, which means he would be good. But we know that he is good, so he is just. And so our so the goodness in our life points towards his goodness, right? But the bad in our life points to the reality that not only can we not be in his presence, but his judgment and his wrath abide on us, and the punishment of our sin awaits us, which means every pain and every moment of despair and loss that you've experienced on earth is but a faint shadow of the reality that awaits us because of our sin. And, and the very worst parts of our life is but a faint echo of the doom that awaits those who die in their sin. But the goodness of God in our lives that we, we feel, the love that we feel, the comfort that we have, all of those things are the faintest image of the goodness of God right, who are found by him to be righteous. But who could be righteous? You see, all of this, every bit of our lives points to the same reality. It points that our greatest need is a need for a savior. Someone who can rescue us. Someone who can, who can not only pay the penalty for our sins and wash us clean, but then make us righteous in the eyes of the Father. And that someone is Christ. Jesus, fully God, came into the world of a, born of a virgin in fulfillment of clear and direct prophecy. And became fully a man and he lived a perfect and sinless life that you couldn't live and and fulfilled a righteous, the righteous requirements of the law that you couldn't fulfill, and he willingly, voluntarily allowed himself to be arrested and tortured and nailed to a Roman cross. And on that cross, not only did he trade places with you, he made an exchange with you. He took upon himself your sin, and in return he gives to you as a free gift his righteousness that you didn't earn. The righteousness that you need to stand before him before God, unafraid. 
the righteousness that you need so that you can be restored in relationship with God, the God that you were created for. And no longer are you his enemy then, but one of his adopted children. Jesus did that for you. And he died to fully satisfy the justice and the wrath of God on your behalf. And then he grants you his righteousness. And three days later, he rises again from the dead, proving that he is what he claimed to be. And that he can do exactly what he promised to do. And that he now then intercedes for you at the right hand of the Father. That is why Jesus came. That is why he was born. That is why we celebrate Christmas. It's not just some baby lying in a manger. It's the incarnate God that came to the world to die, to give me something that I don't deserve. And that's why the whole world instinctively worships this unknown God. And that is the reality that all of the world is pointing toward this time of year. Every light, every piece of holly, every decoration, every, every song, every scrap of wrapping paper, all points to this. And so is all of your life. The good in everyone's life points toward the one who is good, the one that we were created for. And the bad points to the judgment and the wrath of that same one because of our sin. Our lives are living testimony of the dire need that we have to be saved. Our lives are a witness of our need for the only one who can actually save us, and that is Christ. So the time for us is perfect. Everybody, everyone believes that God exists, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. Everyone is religious, whether they want to admit it or not, and they were made for worship. And everyone is preparing for the celebration right, that all of life is pointing towards the coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Which again means this is a perfect opportunity to tell people what this season is really about and to share Christ with them and the hope that is found in Christ. This is the perfect opportunity, church family. This is the perfect opportunity, which should leave us with one question. Will you take the opportunity? do all this to this point. The rest of it you have to do. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.